Speaking of the press, remember during the Contra aid boat when the networks wouldn't let me on the air? I bet you wondered how I finally got my message out. It's no secret that the press and I sometimes don't get along. In addition to my standard ploy of using helicopter noise to avoid reporters' questions, I've now added a new method to avoid questions. Tear gas. Tear gas. Tear gas. You, in others, this is your soul. This is what you are. This is what your consciousness has breathed and lived on and enjoyed throughout your life. Your soul, your immortality, your life in others. And what now? You have always been in others, and you will remain in others. And what does it matter to you if later on, that is called your memory? This will be you, the you that enters the future and becomes a part of it. One of the questions that socialists and communists get asked pretty often is what if someone is special? How are they recognized and rewarded for being extra smart or extra talented or extra hardworking? This seems to be a legitimate question. And the answer to it doesn't come easily for people who are used to living in an ostensible meritocracy, or at least believe themselves to have been living in one. On the most radical end of the spectrum, the prompt and usually derisive answer is, they aren't. No one is special because everyone is special. All hierarchies are destroyed by the tautological mechanism of everyone already being equal. To my knowledge, nobody seriously believes that any system could be implemented that reflects this, nor does anyone believe that individual human relationships could be so drastically simplified. In fact, I'd hazard a guess that even some of the most stringent anarchists would rebuke that notion as a cartoonish mischaracterization of left-wing ideals. So then, would people get recognized for their achievements? If so, how? Simply put, yes, of course, and probably with money and fame. Ever heard of the Bolshoi? While the eventual goal of communism is the dissolution of class, money, and the state, those things probably won't happen for a while. And when they do, people are going to be people, and we will always express and seek appreciation. What needs to change is the system through which wealth is generated. The accumulation and protection of wealth in a capitalist system necessitates the exploitation of someone somewhere along the line. And this needs to change immediately. In the meantime, you have to ask yourself some certain questions in a certain order. The answers to which, respectively, separate the progressive from the status quo, the communist from the capitalist, and the revolutionary from the opportunistic. Could life be better? What will make it better? And how far am I willing to go for that to happen? What worries me is that America's kind of lost its sense of the future right now. The idea is the future's going to be the collapse of empire, or the rise of the zombies, or something that wipes us all out. 
far as I'm concerned, man, it saved my life. Grim, totalitarian police state in Britain of the unreachably far future, like 1997. Comic book artists were not happy with Warhol or the inside of any of the pop artists because they said they took our imagery and we got paid page rates. We left off the last episode rather abruptly. I'll chalk this up to the pacing of the comic and not the podcast, but I'm certainly no neutral authority. The cover of this issue, issue number four, is just about as prophetic and foreshadowy as the cover of the last one, but it unfortunately doesn't have the political heft of its previous counterpart. On it, we're subjected to quite an intimate close-up of most likely the villains, legs, and derriere the latter of which is tastefully covered by the Justice League emblem featured in the title block. Within the superheroic split and thigh gap, we see Booster Gold, garishly armored con man from the future, shocked and near cowering in response to this imposing vision, standing over the unconscious forms of the Justice League, who have presumably been bested by our mysterious antagonist. The cover and the title text, Booster Gold Battles Alone for the Future of the Justice League, certainly make the situation seem dire. And the narrative peaks and valleys would be dire for sure, were a recounting of them to omit the cartoonish in-betweens and how they got their moments. But we'll save those for the appropriate points in the episode. There's really not a whole lot of content in this issue that translates to the audio format unless you all want me to describe every single punch and blow which I might end up doing, who knows. An unspecified amount of time has passed since the last issue, but it's probably not more than an hour or so. The League are discussing Maxwell Lord's past and recent transgressions against them, particularly the unauthorized League communicator he gave to Dr. Light, which we just learned about, and the fact that he's just broken into the League's headquarters and brought Booster Gold with him in an attempt to get the League to accept Booster into their ranks. Of course, we have to meet our requisite quota of Guy Gardner, the Green Lantern, being unnecessarily combative and shitty, so he antagonizes Batman during the meeting and makes fun of Captain Marvel, who, I will remind you, is now known as Shazam, but I'm going to keep calling him Captain Marvel because that's how he's referred to in this story. The actual members of the League are sitting around the conference table at the League headquarters and sniping at each other. Mr. Miracle, escape artist extraordinaire from the hellish planet of Apocalypse, displays his technical prowess by mentioning that he's almost finished upgrading the headquarters security system, further convincing me that Blue Beetle, who's supposed to be yet another variation on the theme of genius inventor turned superhero, is only around because of his sweet, sweet beetle-shaped plane. We'll come back to the topic of genius inventors and weapons designers in superhero comics in a later episode or two. Reed Richards of the Fantastic Four, Tony Stark, whom you all know as Iron Man, Ray Palmer, a.k.a. The Atom, the Hank Pym version of Ant-Man slash Giant-Man, uh, Bruce Wayne needs no introduction, of course, and my problematic second favorite comic book character of all, Bruce Banner, the Hulk. Almost all of these characters have something pretty awful in common, and it's not just that they're white men. But we'll get to this down the road. Right now, Mr. Miracle has given us something to think about. What is security? How do we define it? 
In this case, it would seem like a fairly straightforward question with an easy answer. Mr. Miracle is talking about a system of physical deterrences designed to stop unauthorized individuals from entering the property. When the ray reaches number five, the blast goes off. That's it. That's the security he means. But security from what? Security of what? From all evidence everywhere in every relevant superhero story, security systems basically never work. They're only ever referenced when they fail. And when they do, the superheroes that the systems were protecting invariably fight off the interlopers with their superior abilities or their friendship or something. Friends forever! So then these systems are evidently designed to protect superheroes from those who can't fight off automated defenses. Or, in other words, from people who are weaker than they are. This may seem ridiculous, and it is. But it's not an entirely distorted reflection of real-life systems we have in place now. Security, in its current most popular usage, is almost exactly what we've seen here. It's a system meant to hinder, quote, weak people from infringing upon the property of the, quote, strong. A key difference between the superhero version and the real-world one is that real-world security is meant to keep the weak people weak. It is one of the many ironies of capitalism that security, in a capitalist society, ultimately results in and relies upon massive amounts of insecurity for most of the population. And that insecurity takes many forms that run the spectrum from a lack of confidence in one's self or one's abilities, all the way to not knowing where your next meal will come from, or if the police are going to literally murder you, as in violently end your life, for trying to find somewhere dry to sleep. We can expand upon this by revisiting a few concepts from previous episodes. Let's start with the fact that capitalism, as opposed to communism, is an accumulative system. That means that any and all value generated by labor, be it the labor of production or the labor of exchange, is owned by an individual or a group of individuals who, increasingly, have had little or nothing to do with the actual work involved. The justification for this is that these people invested in the tools or facilities that are used to produce whatever goods or services the company provides. In a positively uncanny twist, this is known as capital. So they therefore have afforded others the opportunity to make money working for them. All the value created by the labor of the workers hired, though, is immediately thought of as belonging to the owners or shareholders of the company, and is then only fractionally relinquished to the workers in agreed-upon amounts, often under unseen or unacknowledged forces of duress, also known as economic insecurity. Get it? Yeah, I gotta find a home for him. Vagrancy? Vagrancy. No home and no money. No money? can't arrest a man with 50 bucks on him, can you? Why, that practically makes him a millionaire. <laughs> Obviously, and I, I understand that this is a tried and true rhetorical tactic and I'm not breaking new ground here, but I like it because it's so useful. If aliens were to fly to Earth and see this happening, I'm sure they'd have some questions. Like, why do the people who don't do the work that makes the money get to decide where the money goes? And how in the world have they convinced people to trust that they're paying fair amounts when quite often these people's actual, agreed-upon, publicly described, and understood jobs 
are about finding ways that the company can spend as little money as possible to maximize profit. And what does it mean to own the value of something? Isn't that simply too abstract to defend? Well, what does it mean to own anything? As anthropologist David Graeber describes in his book Debt, The First 5,000 Years, property is not really a relation between a person and a thing. It's an understanding or arrangement between people concerning things. As at least Western capitalist society understands or has arranged now, the things that are used to create value must be kept out of the influence of the people who use them in that way. This secures the accretion of value generated by labor with those tools. And more often than not, it secures it violently. In pursuit of achieving this top-down distribution of wealth, the system necessitates almost recursively that the laboring classes at all levels of production have certain amounts of property taken from their control. I mean, who do you think created the tools for that labor in the first place? Who do you think created the tools for your labor? This becomes then the private property that we just mentioned. And I'll cut off a line of questions that I'm sure this will bring up. In the politics and analysis of class and class relations, private property means specifically property belonging to someone that is used but not owned by others to generate value. It doesn't mean your cars or your toothbrushes or your dogs. Nobody wants to seize those things. Except maybe your dogs. Please send pictures of your dogs to Collective Action Comics Podcast on Instagram or Twitter. Bonus points and a shout out if you pose them next to some comic books. Naturally, not owning any amount of property makes you exactly that amount poorer. This is not a leap. But there are also complex psychological effects that come with this particular form of dispossession or material deprivation. We touched upon this briefly in episode one in the explanation of commodity fetishism. For a refresher, commodity fetishism is the idea that the value of a product or a service comes from some unknowable and unnameable, almost magical inherent quality and is not tied to the work or the labor that went into making the thing. To jog your memory, think of the macaroni art that I would have so callously urinated on were I to be a commodity fetishist. Again, and I can't stress this enough, that's a joke. And commodity fetishism is not a sexual fetish. And commodity fetishist is not a real phrase. When we alienate the work from the value, that begins to affect the workers. And it's happening to most of us right now. We are alienated from the fruits of our labors. We don't feel connected to the outcome or to the product or to the joy or basic satisfaction these products might bring to people because we are increasingly disconnected from feeling like a part of the process that made that all happen. It has been and is being slowly taken from us. So why should we feel motivated to engage more than we have to if it's apparent that we're not being paid the full value of the work and if we're unable to identify with the eventual outcome of the work we're already putting in. This itself is an insidious form of insecurity because we're constantly seeking ways to fill both the voids in our pockets and the voids in our souls. But what does this have to do with security as we understand it in the macro, as we've defined so far? 
Well, the bosses have to protect a system that is massively and obviously disadvantageous to the hordes of workers that outnumber them somehow, right? This is where the police come in. Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare your children. That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to scare anybody. I mentioned in episode two that the police protect property, but it's very important that we understand that they actually, and specifically, protect capital. That's why you are never getting your stolen TV back, but American cops in Portland, Oregon, will guard a dumpster full of food that a grocery store was getting rid of from people who were hungry and desperate. This actually happened. To quote Bruce Johnson's article, Taking Care of Labor, the Police in American Politics, The new criminology recognizes that the state and its agencies are not neutral arbiters of social and economic disputes, much less the embodiment of the public interest and the public will. The legal order is rather a servant to power, the guarantor of society's class and status inequities. Surely, there can't be that many instances of law enforcement protecting private property. Just... January 9th, 1907, the Mexican Army killed 200 striking textile workers. April 20th, 1914, the National Guard used machine guns on striking miners in Colorado. January 19th, 1915, New Jersey sheriffs fire into a crowd of striking fertilizer workers. January 7th, 1919, the tragic week in Argentina during which cops killed upwards of 700 March 12th, 1915, the Barcelona Civil Guard kills striking tram workers. May 15th, 1950, police used tear gas on strikers in Nairobi, Kenya. May 16th, 1967, British police beat peaceful workers. Picketing in front August of August 17, 1987, factory. the great workers' struggle in South Korea saw a battle between thousands of June workers 6, and riot. Police. 1988, police regularly opened fire on crowds of black workers in South Africa June 15, during a strike. The Battle of Century City, in which Los May Angeles 22nd, police attacked peaceful janitors. Oahu teachers walk out after their demands are met and are faced with violence from law April 2013, striking Bangladeshi garment workers clash with police while protesting unsafe working conditions after a a building collapsed and killed a thousand of their friends and co-workers. The list goes on and on. In a horrible feedback loop, security has also become a commodity, to be bought and sold among the ruling class at the expense of the workers. Whether it's private protection firms that offer a physical presence at private property or PR companies that offer defense against perceived obsolescence, the market for security has never been better. What's more, under the current system of constant and accelerating commodification of everything, security, as a service, can literally never deliver or be expected to deliver a satisfactory final product, because there will always be something new to secure, and the violence of the very act of securing ensures that there will always be exploited and alienated people to secure against. Pretty much the opposite of that old teacher's joke, Our job is to make you no longer need us. The next argument for the League needing a security system, then, is that these systems are in place to protect the headquarters when the League isn't around to do so themselves. This is fair enough, but we have to ask what the League might have in the headquarters that they don't want the bad guys to know about or take control or possession of. There are other versions of the Justice League's headquarters that house a fair amount of sensitive material and dangerous artifacts recovered or confiscated by the League, but we haven't seen anything yet in this comic that indicates the League has anything of value at the base. In fact, 
there are two people waiting calmly in a study just off the main room who broke in, I guess hung around for a while, and are going completely unpunished. Maxwell Lord and Booster Gold are waiting in what appears to be a study or a library or something that's in the League's headquarters for some reason. It's possible that someone finally remembered that Dr. Light isn't actually a member of the League because she's also in there and not taking part in the discussion happening in the main conference room. Dr. Light angrily recaps for Lord, but really for us, the story of how he mysteriously appeared to her to offer what she believed then to be a sanctioned position on the League. Lord then tells her not to worry and that everything that has happened has been going according to his, quote, master plan. This is the last manipulative straw for Dr. Light, and she then storms out declaring that she was quitting. Confusing, since she wasn't in the League ever. What's also confusing is that Batman and the rest of the League show up at the same door that Dr. Light just marched through mere seconds before and immediately ask where Dr. Light is. After Maxwell Lord reassures Batman that Dr. Light is a nobody and that Booster Gold is the real prize to be recruited for the team, Booster blows up on Max and shouts that he'll be just fine on his own while backhandedly revealing to the League that Lord has some sort of plan that he's been acting upon. Booster then subjects that poor study door to even more abuse as he makes his hasty and undignified exit. Then Guy Gardner offers to torture Maxwell Lord for information, because that's just the kind of hero he is. Catching up with Booster Gold outside, we're presented with a man in a quandary. Embroiled in an inner monologue meant to fill in some of Booster's blanks for anyone who hasn't read his solo comic series, which is pretty much everybody, let's be honest, he revisits his circumstances and his motivations. A direct quote will sum it up nicely. I came back in time from the 25th century to be a hero, and I've done pretty well so far. But joining the Justice League, boy, that would have been a feather in my cap. Then he adds, if I had a cap, because J.M. DeMatteis just cannot let an idiom pass unmolested. Low already from his existential turmoil, Booster sinks even farther upon noticing a large group of reporters clamoring just outside the electrified security fence. Mustering his charm and courage, he approaches them with his head held high, and although we're not privy to his responses to the bombardment of questions, we get a pretty good idea of his swagger from artist Kevin McGuire's mastery of facial expression. And I mean to tell you, that aspect of this series truly is phenomenal. Meanwhile, the issue begins to finally get moving. Using the brouhaha of Booster's interview with the reporters as a distraction, a group of shady individuals sneak to the high-voltage electrical box that powers the League's security fence, and is rather counterintuitively outside of it. And they attach to it some sort of power disruptor that shorts out the circuitry of the system, causing an arc of energy to endanger the lives of Booster Gold and the mob of reporters he's talking to. Fortunately, no one is hurt, but Booster notices just in time a distant figure scrambling into the now vulnerable base. We cut to the rest of the League inside the compound dealing with the brief interruption of power. Black Canary works quickly to get the juice going again, and of course, no one acknowledges this in the slightest. The team debates who might be responsible for the incursion until they notice Booster Gold on one of the security monitors. He's looking for the mysterious group of interlopers. He manages to find them without attracting their attention and agonizes over what his opening line is going to be. Because I hate this sort of schlock, I was at once happy that he totally fumbles it, but also deeply regretful that this awful book drew me in even this far. 
The mysterious group has shed their disguises and revealed themselves to be the Royal Flush Gang, a two-bit gaggle of villains with playing card-themed costumes and weapons. I guess you could call them super villains, because they sort of sometimes almost somewhat have superpowers maybe? But I'm not going to because that would mean I was wrong about the Grey Man being the only supervillain in the story back in episode 2. Anyway, they're also totally uninteresting. What is interesting is Black Canary's reaction to seeing Booster pick a fight with the Royal Flush Gang on the computer screen inside. She asks the only logical question, what do they hope to gain by attacking us now? And of course, she's callously dismissed by Batman, who obviously hates women. He then asks Mr. Miracle to ready the new security system Mr. Miracle had mentioned earlier. Maxwell Lord tries to watch the imminent fracas, but the Martian Manhunter detains him. I want to take a moment to talk about Maxwell Lord as a stand-in for a class, specifically the capital class, the class of capitalists, like actual capitalists, not just people on the internet who call themselves that but wouldn't know the rate of profit if it fell on their heads. And that's a very good joke that the economists in the audience are no doubt losing their shit over right now. We only really know one concrete detail about Maxwell Lord so far, that he's a millionaire. And we only know this because Batman mentions it in this issue. And he makes it sound so sinister. There's a certain irony in Bruce Wayne casting aspersions on a millionaire, but I don't feel like I need to point it out, so I won't. Before I get into the Maxwell Lord class, let's clarify some things. Since we've been discussing security and the violence needed to maintain control of private property, I think it's as good a time as any to get into a very dirty word I just used. Profit. In most of the West, most folks are brought up to have an instinctive understanding of the word while they are, at the same time, tacitly discouraged from thinking critically about it, at least in a moral sense. So what is it? It's not just making money. Profit, clinically speaking, is the leftover value that was generated by labor after the wage or wages for that labor have been paid. It's the company's take, if you will. This is what necessarily drives the antagonism between capital and labor. Capital makes profit off of labor. Profit can only come from labor, and specifically from exploited labor. It doesn't come from materials. It doesn't come from products being sold at a markup. Because if profit relied on that, capitalists could just mark up any percentage willy-nilly and not give a damn about repercussions or declining sales or anything like that. They have to sell the product at a reasonable price for the market in order to keep selling it. Therefore, the profit that is generated must come from the fact that labor is being underpaid for the work. I know some of you are putting your big brain hats on right now. What about freelancers? What about famous YouTubers? What about etc.? There are many different situations that people are in. Plus, not all commodities and products result in surplus value, the old-timey name for the difference in money you make for your boss versus the money they pay you. But in general, all profit is exploitative. And in certain situations, you can even exploit your own labor. Yes, this is a thing, and no, it's not nearly as bad as when someone else does it, but it still sucks. Regardless, unless you are pocketing money you made from the labor of someone else, you are still part of the working class, part of the proletariat, to use the nerd word for it. You survive by selling your labor. Thus, you are not a capitalist. 
And this brings us nicely back to people like Maxwell Lord. I won't spoil anything for anyone in the audience who wants to read on in this series past where I'm going to stop, so past issue 7, but I will go ahead and warn you that Lord does indeed reveal his master plan later. And then much later than that, there will be a twist, and then a retcon, and then another twist. But for most of the pertinent story, Maxwell Lord will fulfill his role as Reaganite nonpareil with only the merest interrogation of what it means to be a conniving and avaricious thousand-dollar suit. Why were tycoons like Lord such a staple of the 80s? What reinvigorated the idea of the private business winner after it was brought low by popular culture movements from the previous half a century? You fellows must remember one thing. Pays to advertise. In another irony of capitalism, and as yet further proof that reform is impossible, one of the factors that contributed to the rise of the celebrity mogul was the slew of regulations placed upon industry in the 1960s. Not that regulating large corporations is a negative, mind you. It's the corporations themselves that should not exist, after all. However, the cost of regulation fell more heavily on smaller businesses than it did on larger ones, as the larger ones could bear the brunt of the costs associated. This allowed the big boys to do exactly as Marx always said they would. They began, in earnest, to gobble up all the pesky little competition. But this is only half the story. While this was happening, the private sector was also playing a sinister game in the public consciousness. From the New York Times, October 3, 1963, Shipline donates $135,000 to Met, funds to help support new production of AIDA. From August 14, 1966, Art USA, given to Smithsonian, Johnson's Wax will present 102 contemporary works. The Ford Foundation, under the leadership of McGeorge Bundy, national security advisor to Kennedy and Johnson and key architect of the Vietnam War, launched the Public Television Laboratory, an educational television program that tackled enough pertinent civil rights issues to get its first episode banned from some southern states. Sounds good, right? It is good, but it's also sinister. So why do I bring this up? Because this was beautiful PR for companies and corporations that were wary of being the next Vietnam scapegoat, like the maker of napalm Dow Chemicals. We can't get people talking about us. Let them win. Fifty. They'll brag it as a hundred. The next one will say it as a thousand. I'm sure this seems a bit cynical. So let's hear it from the statement before Congress of Herbert Schmertz, Vice President for Public Affairs of the Mobile Oil Corporation, in the 1974 Senate hearing on the role of private foundations in public broadcasting. Quote, I think we would be naive to deny that there is a link between the popular claim for Masterpiece Theater and our other public service efforts, on the one side, and the profitable operation of our business, on the other. As a commercial company, we are concerned not only with day-to-day money-making, but with the climate of opinion in which we can continue to operate successfully, certainly in these days when understanding of oil companies is not exactly a glut on the market. This is a reason we cannot overlook." End quote. So, uh, there you have it. What all this culminates in, then, is an accelerated takeover of small businesses by big businesses, but a cultural understanding that it was the fault of the big bad government that caused this to happen, and not the actual fault of the classy and refined giant corporations who, you know, actually did it. 
So now we have CEOs and business leaders in the spotlight again, and while there are plenty of 80s movies where a real estate developer is the bad guy, the general consensus shifted positively towards the upper crust. Yes, Maxwell Lord is a bad guy, but he's technically not an antagonist, at least not yet. And despite a series of twists and rewrites over the next two decades, it won't be until 2005 that Lord is explicitly shown to have been a true villain all along. But corporate executives, as we have seen, are true villains regardless of motivations they have or actions they take outside of their role in business. The pay structure, the control of private property, the very mechanisms by which one becomes wealthy in a capitalist world are villainous. And no amount of money an individual millionaire or billionaire gives back can make this palatable because the system that caused the inequality still exists. And this is at its very simplest. Thanks to tax loopholes and benefits designed to bilk even more wealth from the working class and shift it upwards to the capital class, the American taxpayer might subsidize up to 74 cents of every single dollar that a billionaire gives to charity. To quote a piece from inequality.org, when we think of the value of the tax deduction, we most often consider the income tax. If I'm in the top income tax bracket, currently 37%, then my charitable donation reduces my income tax by that percent. For every dollar I donate, the taxpayer chips in 37 cents of my gift in lost revenue. But when the very wealthy give, the donation not only reduces income taxes, but also lowers their capital gains and estate and gift taxes. If I donate one billion to my private foundation, I have reduced my taxable estate by one billion dollars. If I donate 20 million in appreciated stock to my donor-advised fund, I get a substantial reduction in capital gains taxes. Time and again, we see how powerful corporate figures have shaped and molded a system to drain as much wealth as possible from the working class and to protect themselves from their victims while they do it. So how do we fight back? Is there anything we can do? It certainly doesn't seem like voting has helped anything. Under a government that systematically rewards wealth by siphoning it from the already insecure to the architects of their insecurity, and inundated with pop culture that reinforces how normal and even natural this is, Casting ballots for candidates who already have to be wealthy and powerful enough just to be given airtime seems like spitting into the wind. At the beginning of the episode, we asked ourselves some questions. Could life be better? Yes, for billions of people, including you. What would make it better? The swift upheaval of the system that perpetuates their poverty and yours. How far am I willing to go to make that happen. This is obviously a personal question that I can't answer for anyone. But the important word here, the word that when changed removes the personal from the equation and substitutes it with something much more precious and effective. The word, of course, is I. And it needs to be changed to we. How far are we willing to go to affect the change we so desperately need? to protect ourselves and each other from those who have been oppressing us for so long. If this system can't protect us, we must protect us. 
And speaking of protection, Mr. Miracle's security system has just switched on, causing a gigantic dome-shaped force field to surround the headquarters, narrowly trapping Booster Gold and the Royal Flush Gang inside. Some very cartoonish fighting occurs for the next several pages, and I'm going to be merciful and spare you the details. One moment I will mention, however, is when Tin, the Royal Flush Gang member, who's, I guess, lower on the rungs than the dudes who are dressed as the Jack and the King, pleads with Booster not to hit her because she's a woman. Naturally, he does. And then he mentions that, in his time period, equality of the sexes is a given, so it's okay to hit anyone. Boy, howdy. There's a lot to unpack, but I'm saving it for, as you can probably guess, another episode. For now, I'll just say that this definition of equality, much like when white people get angry that they can't say the N-word, is very much the idea of equality as viewed through the lens of the privileged. In other words, in this view, equality means getting to victimize everyone equally rather than lift everyone up to the same heights. Also, right after Booster Gold beats a woman unconscious, he turns to see Batman smiling and nodding approvingly. I'll just leave you with that. Suddenly, Booster is confronted with Ace, the hulking, brutish android whose ass cheeks we saw on the cover. It's actually a rather good full-page panel that communicates just how imposing Ace is as he towers over Booster. He then whacks the hell out of Booster and sends him flying. Batman directs the League to jump into action, but of course, he takes the time to interrupt Black Canary to tell her there's no time for questions about the origin of this new foe. Yep. For the next couple of pages, Ace proceeds to beat the hell out of the League, displaying that he's specifically equipped to exploit each member's individual weaknesses. E.g., he shoots fire at the Martian Manhunter, outmuscles Captain Marvel, and turns yellow when the Green Lantern tries to use his power ring on him. Which is all just very silly, and I make no apologies for this part because I love superheroes and there's nothing you or I can do about it. Finally, Booster Gold and the Blue Beetle devise a plan to use the base's force field against the giant playing card-themed robot bad guy. I did mention how silly this was, right? Booster blindsides Ace and picks him up off the ground. He then hurls the villain into the exact area where the force field will activate and instructs the Blue Beetle to turn it on. Blue Beetle doesn't hear the signal at first because he's too busy lamenting that the rest of the team is hogging the glory. After another shout from Booster, Blue Beetle comes to his senses and connects a plug to an outlet. The energy dome sizzles to life and cuts the android in half. The League then convenes in one of the many unspecified rooms in the headquarters, and Batman officially welcomes Booster Gold to the team. It is just at that moment that Maxwell Lord sticks his awful nose in the League's business once again and holds, much to the League's surprise, an impromptu press conference with the mob of reporters outside. Not sure how he got out of wherever the Martian Manhunter had left him, and he announces, as the official press liaison of the League, that they have welcomed Booster Gold into their ranks. Batman then rather dourly assures the team that Lord will be dealt with, and hard. But that's going to have to wait until the next episode. Actually, it won't, because they don't deal with it at all in this entire first volume. Greetings out there in Listenerland. This station would like to thank everyone who showed up to the community potluck last week, and also to apologize for the rash of food poisoning that broke out the day after. Your announcer is merely an enthusiastic amateur and takes full responsibility for that one. Many thanks to the hospital staff for their tireless responses. 
We count our blessings that we live in a society that provides free health care to all and that we no longer labor under the yoke of a business class that would demand that we choose between meager income and rest and recuperation. Meanwhile, as we nurse our potluck-ravaged bodies back to health, we have a special feature this week. This announcer will now cede the microphone to your host and let him proceed. Excellent. Thank you, bud. One of our listeners, Comrade Mickey, has sent us some primo stuff on Instagram from three issues of Batman that were published in 1990. We could not have asked for a better epilogue to our Justice League and anti-Russian propaganda crossover theme from the previous two episodes. In these three issues, Batman number 445 through 447, Batman is called to Moscow to battle a supervillain who's been murdering, quote, traitors to the Soviet cause. Authorities in the USSR specifically reached out to Batman because he had taken down another similarly themed bad guy two years prior. In 1988, Batman fought a cybernetically enhanced Russian assassin named the KG Beast because satire is dead and Batman killed it. The current villain plaguing Moscow is apparently a protege of the KG Beast who has taken to calling himself, I swear to God, the NKV Demon. Listen, KG Beast is actually pretty good, regardless of how it might have come to be, but NKV Demon is, is a fucking stretch. For some background, the KGB was the Soviet Union's answer to the CIA in the United States. It was a covert intelligence operation working both domestically in Russia and its satellites, as well as internationally, particularly in the Middle East and Germany. The NKVD, which stands for something in Russian that I'm not going to insult by trying to pronounce, but it translates to the People's Commissariat of Internal Affairs, was more closely akin to American domestic police forces and probably in more ways than most Americans know or would like to admit, particularly when it comes to border security, political assassinations, forced labor prisons, and extrajud—fuck, this is so hard to say—and extrajudicial executions. Nailed it. Tenth try. An immediate and deeply academic question comes to mind. What gives? What gives? Why is a capitalist enforcer like Bruce Wayne suddenly so comfortable working with the Russians? The answer to this, sadly, places a rather neat bow on the story of the USSR, as it's tied intimately with its destruction. In the late 80s, Mikhail Gorbachev promoted two particularly historic policies, Glasnost, of his own design, and Perestroika, which was instituted by one of his predecessors, Leonid Brezhnev. I won't go into too much detail, but Glasnost was a policy of governmental transparency meant to facilitate the dissemination of information and to foster more awareness of government action and accountability. Perestroika was the push to decentralize economic planning and open up markets to either salvation or exploitation by Western capital, depending on who you ask. You can probably guess my position. Anyway, given these two policies, especially perestroika, it's easier to understand why Bruce Wayne would find welcome in Russia under the guise of wanting to inspect factory facilities that Wayne Enterprises was looking to purchase. Private property, right? Over the course of the issues, Batman fails to prevent all of the murders that the NKV demon is out to commit except—it's so good—is out to commit except, of course, for the last one, that of Mikhail Gorbachev. 
There are some choice scenes between the murder attempts in which the NKV demon monologues about how great his country was and how far it has fallen, and he invokes the names of Marx and Lenin on multiple occasions. Naturally, each of these scenes is absolutely bathed in various shades of red. It's a red alert, Mason. I can't help but wonder, however, if these same sorts of scenes would have the same terrifying effect in a different setting. Say, a post-apocalyptic Langley, Virginia, in which a former D.C. Metro cop is taking out New World Order government officials in an attempt to restore the United States. That just seems like red-blooded patriotic family literature to me. The whole thing culminates with the attempt on Gorbachev's life at the ceremony for both Earth Day and Lenin's birthday. Obviously, Batman manages to thwart the bad guy and get away unquestioned with the help of his contact in the NKVD. Bruce Wayne buys a factory and flies back to America. The end. But there are some decent moments that don't get entirely ruined immediately after. J.M.D. Mateus and Keith Giffen, after all, are not the writers for this book, so that's a small mercy. Reporter Cat Grant is also in Moscow for a story, and she and Bruce Wayne have a nice discussion in which she mentions her admiration for the sense of group effort in the Russian culture, which is good. But later, she refers to Bruce Wayne as an ordinary citizen with incredible wealth, which is bad. Oh well, we can't have it all. There's also some nice, albeit saccharine and borderline naive, talk about how the crumbling of the USSR means that everyone all over the world can come together to save the environment, which fits nicely with the Earth Day theme. But almost all of it focuses on the pollution behind the Iron Curtain. Obviously, they mentioned Chernobyl, so I did a little research. The Chernobyl Exclusion Zone is roughly 1,000 square miles. Now, I don't know what other uninhabitable environmental disaster sites there might be still left over from the USSR, and believe me, I looked. But the largest EPA Superfund site in the U.S., i.e. a site that requires long-term hazardous waste cleanup, is the Hanford site in Washington State, which clocks in at about 550 square miles. As of June 2019, there are 1,343 other EPA Superfund sites in America. I'm just trying to keep things in perspective. At the height of its industry output, the USSR was only hitting 79% of the emissions coming from America at the time. We have this notion that everything bad that happened in the USSR was unique to its system, and even because of its system. And you'd be a credulous fool to assume that at least some of the problems weren't exactly that. But it would be ignorant and even disingenuous not to apply that same critical eye to the system we are struggling under today. If poor people there were poor because of communism, then why aren't poor people here poor because of capitalism? They're certainly not poor over here because of communism since our government has spent billions to stamp it out wherever it pops up and threatens their ideals. This is just an aspect of the mindset that we've been told we believe in that we should stop and think about. Once again, 
Thank you to Comrade Mickey for sending us that incredible find. If any of our other listeners have comics or corrections or fun facts or anything at all they'd like to share, please send it to Collective Action Comics Podcast on Instagram, Call Comics, C-O-L-C-O-M-I-X on Twitter, or CollectiveActionComics at gmail.com. We look forward to your input. And as always, tune in in two weeks for the next thrilling installment of Collective Action Comics. Comics.